passage. This is Joy Week. Several of our lectionary passages came from Philippians this year, and, uh, and as I was reading through them, I just kind of fell in love with this book as an Advent study. So instead of bouncing around with the... Uh, there we go. Instead of bouncing around with the lectionary, we decided just to stay in Philippians. And so the first week we did chapter 1, we talked about hope, and we talked about how hope is always a tension. Hope, you don't hope for something you have. So if, if you are having to hope, it means you don't have what you want yet. And so hope always comes with this natural tension of, of I don't ha- I'm not where I should be. I don't have what I want yet. I don't, God hasn't come through in the way I want him to, and so I'm, I'm left having to hope. And then we talked about how it's always a gamble, how hope is more than just um, you know, saying, ah, whatever happens, happens. You know, hope is, is we talked about how Paul said, I'm, I'm torn between two desires. You know, and, and, and we have this tendency to treat Paul like, you know, when he, when he said, uh, whether I live or die, it's for Christ. You know, we, we, we have a tendency to feel like he's like, ah, whatever happens, happens. I'm cool with either outcome. But really, he said, I'm torn between two desires. He was emotionally engaged in both things. And any of us who have ever prayed for the will of God know what it means to be torn between two desires. We want God's will. We know it's best. We know it's the thing that, that will serve us best. But that doesn't change the fact that we really want what we want. And we also want our prayer answered. And so we're torn between two desires. We want this thing and we want the will of God. And sometimes that's a, that's a ripping feel, like it's a, it's a tension. And to hope for something is always a gamble. We always kind of hang ourselves out there um, when, we, when we hope for something. And then we, third, we talk about how hope is communal how Paul was sharing his hopes with the Philippians and how we talked about how when you really have a heart's desire, when you really want something and how when you share that, the second you share that with somebody else, it just like turns up the volume on it. Like that hope is suddenly amped up because you've shared it. When it's just in your own heart, it's, it's tense enough. It's a gamble enough. But the second that thing comes out of your mouth, it just like it ramps it up a, a notch. And so that was week one. Last week we talked about peace and we talked about how um, Paul kind of sent, uh, sent them this, this, he was begging, really, this desire that they would be unified, that they would be of one mind. And we talked about what that looks like to be unified in the church and how it was part of Jesus' final prayer that the church would be one, that they would be unified, that they would have no divisions. In his last prayer in John, right at the end of it, he was like, God, let them be one as you and I are one. It was his prayer. Paul begged the Philippians for it. He was like, be of one mind. And then he chastised the Corinthians when they slipped away from it. He was like, hey, I've heard there's divisions among you. Some of you guys are saying, I'm this kind and I'm that kind, and that's not the way it should be. And, and this, this biblical imperative for unity in the church really just kind of has turned away from that. And, and we talked about how any, any doctrine, I, and I told you I, I might lose my evangelical card for this, but any doctrine that causes you to, to divide, to say, no, those people aren't part of the body of Christ, you've probably got it wrong. You probably have it wrong if you're pushing your doctrine that far. We're supposed to wrestle over our theology as one together. And we're supposed to disagree. We're supposed to, but we're never supposed to lose that unity. And so we talked about how, how Paul's command for peace took work. We talked about how we never work for our salvation, but we do have to work for our peace. It's something we have to struggle for and work for. And so finally we finished up last week about how Paul's kind of conclusion, he had this doctrinal statement um, where he, uh, he, it was maybe the earliest creed, they think. They don't know if Paul wrote it or if he was quoting it, but he, he kind of goes through that statement where he talks about Jesus and how he did not count being God as something to hang on to, but humbled himself to become a man. And we talked about how back then, 
it wasn't uncommon for a human to be considered a god, especially not in Philippi, which was in Greece. Alexander was considered divine. Um, Octavius, who became Augustus, um, was considered to be divine. That wasn't weird. They were totally used to, to a human becoming divine. What they were not used to is a god becoming human, a god who would humble himself, a god who would go the other direction and go into the mess. That would have been earth-shattering. We, we consider the divinity side of Jesus the earth-shattering part. They wouldn't have seen it that way. They were kind of used to that. It wasn't uncommon for somebody to be declared divine. What they would not have gotten was how, how a God would go the other direction, not just become a man, but be killed as a man, uh, uh, a sinner's death. And so the big revelation was Jesus' trajectory. He went the other way, His, this, this path of descent that Jesus said. And so Paul basically lays out to have peace, to have unity, is to take the path of descent. It's to say, I consider your opinion valuable. I see you. I uh, as long as we're fighting to be right, as long as we're fighting and to be you know, on top, we can never have unity. We can never have peace. Peace comes through humility. Peace comes through the path of descent. And so that brings us into chapter 3 of Philippians. And this is Joy Week. And, and this is one of the reasons I fell in love with this book is because Paul kind of launches into this chapter with whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So it just fit. Week 3 is always Joy Week. And Paul launches in this chapter talking about joy. And so it, this book just started feeling like an Advent book. Um, it fit kind of perfectly. Um, whatever happens, express your joy in the Lord. So I dove into this chapter kind of with joy on the brain. And, and, uh, and I found that this book, and especially this chapter, is kind of a beautiful look at joy. Because joy is kind of hard to teach on. Um, because it's so close to happiness that we, we, we kind of fumble around trying to find the difference between joy and happiness. And usually what we come up with is, is that joy is a happiness that does not depend on happenstance. It's like it, it feels like happiness, only it it's not, doesn't depend on what's going on. It's deeper because your circumstances don't necessarily define it. Which is fine, except I have a few problems with that exact definition. One being, some people seem... Uh, in their personality to, to be more joyful then. Because we've all known those optimists whose happiness is unshakable, like who, who seem to have, you know, where there is no happenstance in it. They're just happy all the time. And so, and, and we know plenty of people who aren't even Christians who are that way, who are just happy. And so if joy is a happiness that doesn't go away with your circumstances, some people seem by personality more suited to biblical joy. And I don't, I don't know that that can be the case. And so sometimes a happiness that doesn't go away um, isn't a good enough definition. Also is the fact that with joy and happiness so similar, in a situation where things are going well, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell if you're joyful or just happy? It's one of the problems I have with our standard definition is if, if you pray for something and God answers your prayer and you're excited about it, are you joyful or are you just happy that things went your way? So, yeah, it's, it's, you want to be joyful, and of course you want to be joyful. And when the Bible says, you know, have, have rejoice, have great joy, you sure want to make sure you have the right one. And the, fact, the last problem I have is that it makes happiness become this kind of petty, shallow, almost, you know, almost like it's a bad thing to have happiness. Like, and, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think we should strive for happiness. And, and, and it's a great goal. And when we can be happy, we absolutely should be. So 
what I loved about this chapter is, is it, uh, I think it gave me a new definition for joy, like maybe a new angle on joy for myself anyway. And so that's what I hope to share. Um, but before we jump into the text to get there, yeah, have you ever had one of those verses that like you don't even have to pick it as a life verse? It just like picks you like this chapter gave me one of those, like one of those verses where I was like, I never get tired of telling you these things. I read that and I was like, you know, if I had a life verse, it would be that one. Like I, if I never, ever get tired of talking about these things. I was, uh, Esther got me a Fitbit for my birthday right there. Pretty awesome. I think it was a hint, but I'm not going to take it that way. Um, and it's amazing because this thing counts everything. It counts your heartbeats and your steps and how many flights of stairs you go up and down. And it's, it's super cool. And, and I, was, <laughs> I was reading this verse and I was like, what I would love is a Fitbit that counted the number of hours I have spent talking about these things. Like, I think Doug and I have got to be in the thousands, you know, that my kids, like, tease me because, you know, they'll hear me in the, in the bedroom just rambling and rambling and rambling. And I'll come walking out looking like I just boxed, you know, 12 rounds. And they're like, we need to, was it Doug? <laughs> yeah. They're like, Dad, that was like two hours. I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know. But, uh, yeah, I have, I have, I would love to know my, my, the hours I have talking about these things. So I can totally feel Paul when he says, um, you know, I never get tired of talking about these things. I think if there's one thing that, that, you know, I have, I have ADD and, and when I, walked away from a football scholarship and a pre-med, you know, program to go into Bible college and, and devote my life to studying scripture. My parents just about died. Like they, cause they knew me, they knew my attention span and to them, they would just assumed, Oh my gosh, this is going to last a month and then he's going to be onto something else. And he just walked away from the scholarship to do this and blah, blah, blah. Well, I can honestly say I'm 27 years in now and I still never get tired of talking about these things. So, so yeah, this verse, my favorite verse ever. But that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. I just couldn't skip it. So, um, <laughs> speaking of ADD, um, tonight we're talking about joy. And, I, and I, ironically, um, what Paul does in this chapter is um, is he, he writes about this subject. He opens up with rejoice, and he does it from prison. And so this is one of Paul's most cheerful, like loving, emotional books and he writes it from a prison cell. And I think that gives him a kind of a unique um, vantage, maybe, to talk about this subject of joy, which I love. Um, they had just sent him a care package. We talked about that. They sent Epaphroditus with a care package to take care of Paul. Paul, this is his thank you letter. Um, he kind of opens up with, here's how I'm doing. Um, uh, here's how things are going. Here's how the gospel's going. He you know, because that would have been a big question when your job is to be the traveling evangelist and they lock you up. You know, did, did, is the gospel still okay? And he opens up the first chapter with the gospel still going out. People are talking about it. Things are good. Um, and then the shocker is he turns around and starts trying to cheer them up. Like, feels like the whole book, he's from prison, he's trying to encourage them and trying to, you know, they sent him this box or this package or this money to encourage him. And he sends back this letter to encourage them. He opens by telling them to rejoice. And I feel like he lays out um, a good discipline for joy, if you want to call it that. Um, And it's through the trajectory of this chapter that it happens. Because I think during the holidays, 
um, we do a terrible job of uh, our, our definition for joy is based on more in the holidays. More get like from from a very young age. What, what's the first thing you say to a kid during hol- during during the holidays? Anybody? What do you want for Christmas? Yeah, with, with the whole thing. What do you want for Christmas? And then afterwards, did you get what you wanted for Christmas? What did you get for Christmas? And, and so we're trained from a very young age that that joy, the joy of the holidays, is is kind of wrapped around getting more stuff and and doing more things, more parties, more shopping, you know, more gifts, more family. Not always a great thing. More stuff. Like it's all about more. And what Paul does in this chapter is he goes the other direction. He says that joy actually comes from less. And he's going to do that in this chapter. And he's going to say that joy isn't attached to having more. It's usually attached to having less. And once we become adult Christians, you know, we're taught better. We're taught that um, the holidays aren't just about the gifts. And we all know this and we all know better. So we, we figure now it's our job to create Christmas. So we, we give more and we do more and we, we uh, take care of more people. But it's still based on more. We, we're, way more. we're way too mature to think that it's all about the gifts now, but it's still about more. It's always about more. And Paul goes the other direction. And he starts with the most basic thing here in verse 2. He says, Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now he starts out by saying rejoice. Whatever happens, rejoice. And he turns around by saying, but watch out for these guys. So the the first thing we do to have joy is to avoid the things that steal joy. That's a pretty basic entry level thing. Avoid the things that steal your joy. I, there's an old cliche that I actually use a lot and live, try to live by. The first thing you do if you find yourself in a ditch is stop digging. Like that's the step number one is stop digging. Um, and then you try to figure out how to get out of the ditch. But most of us, you know, we're lamenting the ditch while we're digging deeper. And so that's what Paul says. Hey, step number one, avoid the things that are going to steal your joy. And, uh, and historically, I do got to go into the historical part of this verse a little bit because it's kind of interesting. Paul's not in Palestine anymore, okay? He's over in Greece. He's crossed the Aegean. So he's gotten farther um, from Palestine. He traveled through the region of Galatia, through Asia Minor, and he's clear over here. So the, the Judaizers most likely had not been here yet. Um, we know that while he was in Galatia, really close to Palestine, over in the east, the, the Judaizers just followed him around. These were the Jews who were trying to get Christians Gentile Christians to convert to Judaism. They didn't think that Gentiles and Jews worshiping together was a good thing. They thought the Gentiles needed to become Jews, um, to be circumcised and become Jews, follow the Mosaic law in order to um, be a Christian. You couldn't worship the Christian, the Jewish Messiah, if you weren't Jewish. And so uh, they followed Paul around trying to get these Gentiles to, to convert to Judaism. And... Uh, and what's interesting is Paul uses a word here that um, he said, watch out for those dogs. Um, and this is kind of a loaded word um, because that was the standard word that Jews of that day would use to speak of Gentiles. They would call them dogs, Gentile dogs. And so Paul, I think, is kind of intentionally, I don't think that's a, an accident that he chose this word to talk kind of back at him. But the real thing is, um, is this word mutilators uh, because sometimes we're so comfortable with circumcision being the sign of the covenant 
and really in most of the regions around Palestine, they would have been too. But once you get over into Greece and Rome, um, there's no kids in the room, so I'm going to talk pretty frank. Um, the Jews would have seen like these people who were, who were fixated on their penises. Like it would have been like, we're the ones with the different penis. Like that's how they would have referred to themselves. We're the circumcised. We are the circumcised. And they were the only ones circumcised. And so when they referred to themselves as the circumcised, to, a, to somebody in Philippi, it would, they wouldn't have gotten it. They wouldn't have understood the, the, the references to the covenant. They wouldn't have understood how that tied them back to a past and back to a people. It would have just been the people who walked in. The first thing they tell you was about their genitalia. And it would have seemed weird. Like, do I need to know what your thing looks like? I don't understand why, why referring to yourself as the circumcised really makes any sense. And so this word, the mutilators, was one of the terms that Jews were referred to once you got over into Greece and Rome because nobody understood it over there. They were like, oh, yeah, those are those people that do that funny thing, that surgical thing that I don't understand at all. They were the mutilators. That's that group that mutilates themselves. And this, the reason I bring this up isn't just to be crass and, and, and crude from the pulpit, but it's to say sometimes the things that we attach to our faith that are deep and meaningful to us, things that, that, that yeah, they're powerful in our world, they're powerful in, in our relationship with God. Sometimes we, when we share our faith and when we take our faith somewhere else, we just naturally attach those things to our faith and someone else just may not get it. Someone else is like, how does that have anything to do with believing in Jesus? I mean, I think alcohol tends to be one of these sometimes. Like, be, because in, in our life, maybe, you know, our relationship with Jesus was, was attached to us deciding to no longer drink, and that's a healthy thing, and that's a fine thing. But then we go to somewhere, like where the Eastern Orthodox Church might be, somewhere where they've never had a culture war like we've had, where they've never had you know, where the conservatives and the liberals fought and one side wanted to drink and one side didn't and that, that amped up the emotions around this subject. To them, they've just drank all the way back to Christ. And so you go in and say, we have to stop drinking because you're, you're a Christian now. And they're, they just don't get it. And, and to them, you're just that weird person who's fixated on alcohol. They just assume those Western Christians must be alcoholics because that seems to be all they can talk about. And that's what it would have felt like to them back then when they hear these Jews coming in saying, well, you've got to, now you have to have a surgery. Now you have to, cut yourself. Now you've got to do this weird stuff. They'll be like, wait, I just believe in Jesus. Do I really need all this extra baggage that comes with it? And so even though, you know, we don't have this exact scenario, we do this all the time. We attach our, our issues and the things that are important to us. I'm not saying circumcision wasn't important and it should have been dropped. Circumcision was part of the Jewish covenant and it was, it was tied to it. It was hugely important to them. But it was one of those things that didn't carry over. It didn't cross over when they went somewhere else. And, and so I think it's something we can be mindful of. Like, what do I take with me that is important to my faith? It is a huge thing to my faith. It is something that, that I wouldn't want to give up. I wouldn't want to change. But at the same time, I don't necessarily have to push it on other people when I share the gospel with them. Something to think about. So, what does this have to do with us in Advent? I think this time of year, we have a tendency to... Um, to engage in joy-stealing activities that we just don't need. Some of them are silly. Some of them are, do you say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays? And we get in fights about it. We get in arguments. You guys remember the AOL chat rooms? Anybody remember AOL chat rooms back in the day? Like the very first chat You've got mail. I, I spent a Christmas Eve one time 
in an AOL chat room debating with someone who was trying to make the case that to teach your kids about Santa was to invite Satan into your home. And we had like a four-hour debate over whether there was a godly way to talk about Santa in a Christian home. And, it, and I was like fuming. I had like smoke coming out of my ears like, this guy's an idiot. Whoever Billy Bob 127 is is just ridiculous. You know, like, <clears throat> got fired up over nothing, over absolutely nothing. You know, Christmas tree or no Christmas tree. A red Starbucks cup or do we boycott the whole thing because they got, you know. We fight over some of the dumbest things. And we allow it to steal our joy. We allow the, the, these things. So Paul says, watch out for all that extra stuff that will rob your joy. You don't need it. So maybe we stay off Facebook this time of year. If it robs your joy, if you read stuff that makes you angry, for Advent, get off Facebook. I don't need things. I don't need things that steal my joy right now. Maybe you say no to a couple Christmas parties that you know those people that you just don't like being around are going to be there. And maybe you say no this year. Say, you know what? My joy is too important this year. I'm not going to go to these places that I know steal my joy. Maybe you don't do gifts this year. Maybe you say, you know what? I stress out about money and buying and shopping so much. I'm just, I'm just going to say we're going to do experiences this year. We're actually doing that in our house. We're, we're giving the kids experiences instead of gifts this year. We're just saying we'd rather spend time with you and go do things. We're not going to give you stuff. We're not going to just load up with more stuff when we already have too much stuff. If, if the shopping thing and the spending thing steals your joy, you don't need it. Stay away from the things that rob your joy. <laughs> one, one of them for us is we, we like to drive around and, and look at Christmas lights as a family. We pack in the van. Now it's two vans and we drive around and, and, uh, and we drive around and, and we, you know, we listen to Christmas music. And then two years ago, you know, we're all humming along to Christmas music and it's fine. And we were taking turns passing the phone around. One of the kids puts on Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And ten seconds later, the van is just screaming, Don't Stop Believing. And then somebody, then after that, we're doing Call Me Maybe at the top of our lungs. We were like, you know what? I don't think we need Christmas music to make this fun. And so now when, it's kind of sad, but when we do, when we go look at Christmas lights, we don't listen to Christmas music because we all like the other music better. And so it was one of those things where we're like, you know, if this gives us more joy to sing Journey and other, you know, dumb pop music and 80s tunes, then that's what we're going to rock to. And, and so whatever, if there's something stealing your joy, as shallow as it seems, don't do it. Step number one is stay away from the things that steal your joy. Watch out for that stuff. Avoid it. Now, this next passage, remember, Paul's not talking about Advent here. He's not talking about, you know, joy in the holiday season. But I think it, I think it fits well. He says, um, I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have a reason to be for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I was pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, when we read this list, we we have to be careful because we have a tendency, um, you know, to to see this as as almost uh, a negative, as almost the things that Paul, you know, was supposed to lay down. But this is... Any Jew hearing this list would have been shouting amen. This is not a negative list. This is us saying, I go to church, 
I pray. I read my Bible. You know, I, I give to the church and to the poor. I, I serve in kids' ministry. Like, this is a good list. Paul's not talking about, you know, I gave up all that foolishness, you know, blah, blah. This is, this is what it meant to be him. And, and we have a tendency to think that he stopped being a good Jew and instead started being a good Christian. And that's not what this saying is saying either, not even a little bit. He actually wraps it up best in the next verse. We rely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. This is one of the simplest statements in Christianity and one of the hardest to actually grasp. If someone asks you how you know you're a Christian, are you a Christian? Yes. How do you know? Like, how do you, how do you, what's, what's the evidence? And we would give them a list, like I just said. I go to church, I read my Bible, I do this stuff. Like, we would naturally turn to the evidence. And the evidence is, Jesus died for me. How do you know you're a Christian? Because Jesus died for me. That's the answer. That's the only answer. And they were like, well, I get that. But, like, how do you know you're his? To that, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I put no evidence, I put no confidence in, in what I do. Like, the evidence is, that there's nothing. I, I don't, like... I put no confidence in the things I do. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Like, what do you do to prove you're a Christian? Oh, I don't put any confidence in that stuff. Just that Jesus died for me. That's the whole thing. Just what he's done for me. None of that other stuff is, is, in, is in it at all. I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me. That's why I'm a Christian. Now, are there things that the Spirit of God might prompt me to do? Might, you know, of course. Of course there are. But that's for me. That's for my good. That's, that's stuff that I need and that he wants for me. And so he, he convicts me to do it and he empowers me to do it because it's good for me to do it. Paul says it this way. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. So Paul is like church attendance, garbage, prayer life, rubbish, giving record, trash, caring for the poor in the dumpster. Like none of that stuff counts. None of that stuff, none of it counts. Only what Jesus has done. We've said this a lot. Religion is based on what we call soteriology. It's a study of salvation. It's the So whatever religion you're in, it's, it's, here's the problem. How do I get saved from it? How do I achieve paradise, make it to nirvana, you know, get to the hall of my ancestors? Whatever it is, it's based on soteriology, the study of salvation. How do I escape my current condition to make it to whatever I'm trying to do? And Christianity is not that way. Christianity has nothing to do with what can I do to get to heaven. That's what we think it is. We think, what can I do to get to heaven? That's not what it is. It's what did Jesus do to get to me? That's the essence of Christianity. What did Christ do to get to me? Not what can I do to get to Christ. That's never, it's what did Christ do to get to me? That's the whole story. That's what makes us different. Otherwise, we would just be another soteriology. We would just be another, how do, what do I do to get to heaven? What makes Christianity unique is it's not that. It's what, what did God do to get to me? The Jews, the, the, the problem that they had, the mistake they made was they thought they became the people of God by doing the law. And the truth was they did the law 
because they were the people of God. They were the people of God because God chose them in Abraham and made a covenant. That's why they were the people of God. They weren't the people of God because they did these things. They were the people of God because God chose them and made a covenant with them. And they did these things because they were the people of God. We're the same way. We have a tendency to think we, we become Christian by doing these things. That's never the case. We do these things because Christ chose us. He, he covenanted with us. And so this, these are the, just the things we do. So what does this have to do with joy? Well, again, I think it comes down to less. I think it comes down to stripping down. The longer we're a Christian, you know, the, the, more, the more medals we get. The, sometimes the disciplines become a little easier. The, the behavior, the Christian behavior becomes a little more natural. We get a few more jewels in our crown. You know, it gets a little easier. And I think that stuff can get heavy sometimes because it can start to feel like this is what I have to do to be a Christian. And, and there can be this lightening, this, this release of burden to say, you know what, I'm a Christian because of Jesus, period. It doesn't mean we just go run wild, but it means I don't have to carry this load of burden and responsibility and feeling like, man, if I drop the ball, I'm toast. If I, if I mess up, he's going to you know, be angry and thump me. And, and we don't have to live with that burden. The joy comes from less it comes from carrying less weight. Paul said, I had, I had a pedigree, man. I had the whole thing. I had, this, I had this list that made me amazing. And the way I found joy was by putting it down. No, that's all garbage. Joy is in saying, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with less. It has to do with stripping it down to just Jesus. That's where the joy is found. It's found in less, not more. Have you ever spent time with a, with a new Christian who hasn't had time to pick up a list yet and they're just joyful? Like, because they're not carrying a list yet. They don't, have a, they don't have the load yet. And they're just happy to be saved. They're just happy that Jesus loves them. They're just full of joy. Like, that's less. And, and, and what do we usually do? I mean, you need to start cleaning up a little bit. I mean, come on, you, you're a mess. You've got to straight. Here, carry some, carry some stuff. Like this is, like you're, you've got too much joy. What you need is some burden. Like that's what we usually do, and it's terrible. Like what we need is to put some things down. We need to look at them and go, man, that looks amazing. It looks amazing to be that joyful and not have so much burden. Like I need what you have. I need to lay some things down, strip some things down, and have more. But there is one more thing. There's a third thing that we strip down. In the next verse, Paul says, I want you to know Christ and experience the mighty power, or I want to know Christ, experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And these verses are nuts because they go so contrary to what we generally think about when we think about the power of God. What if the power of God showed up just to end your pain and suffering? If that were true, in order to experience the power of God, you would have to experience pain and suffering. Like, the reality is, like, what Paul is saying is, all I want is the power of God. A couple months ago, God confronted me with this question, and it's been beating me up ever since. He said, when was the last time you prayed for something? 
that would make your life less convenient if I said yes? When was the last time you asked for something that would make your life harder if I said yes? It made me examine my prayer life. I was like, nope, 100% of my prayers are stuff that's going to make my life better. Like, rarely do I say, God, push me harder. God, challenge me to give more. God, challenge me to, to dig deeper. Like, all of my prayers are for my comfort. Like, and so I was like, when was the last? So Paul here is saying, I want to experience the power of God. That's what I want. However, that, if that comes by God sending me an earthquake to free me from prison like he did in Philippi, awesome. If it comes by him standing next to me as I'm burned at the stake and comforting me in my suffering, awesome. What I want is the power of God, not the outcome. And that's the third thing that brings us joy is when Jesus becomes more central than the outcome. Our joy is so often attached to an outcome. It's attached to if this happens, if I get what I want, if then I would be joyful. And Paul says, whatever happens, whatever happens, I just want to experience the power of God. I want Jesus. Whatever happens, what I'm in prison, whether I get released or whether I die here, whether it's, you know, uh, a comfortable thing or whether it's a painful thing, that doesn't matter. My joy is not wrapped up in what happens. Now we're back to our original definition a little bit. It's not wrapped up in what happens. It's wrapped up in I want Jesus. I want to experience the peace of God. One way or another, he said. That's what I think is powerful. So that one way, boy, that's a terrible color up there. So that one way or another, I will experience a resurrection from the dead. When we start to pray that way, joy takes on a whole different light. When, when our prayer is, here's what I want, but one way or another, I want Jesus. Like whether I get my prayer, whether I don't get my prayer, as long as I get Jesus, I'm happy. Whether, whether you deliver me from this or walk with me through it, as long as I'm with you, I'm happy. Like that becomes the joy. When we can strip off the outside stuff that steals our joy, when we can strip off the inside pressures that bog down our joy, and when we can let go of our expectations in a particular outcome, we're finally free to experience joy. And please understand, this is not, we talked about this two weeks ago, this is not a Zen thing. This is not a, ah, whatever happens, happens. I'm cool with any outcome. You know, what? whatever. Paul, Paul never prays that way. He's super emotional in this book. Like he, he's back to, I'm torn between two desires. This is, this is having the authenticity to say, I will be really happy if this, but I am joyful because of this. Like it's, this, is, this is having the freedom to want what you want and, be, and desperately seek God for it and desperately pray for it, but also know that as long as Jesus walks with me, I'm okay. This is not a, a, a Zen, you know, you got to be cold and I don't, whatever the outcome is, I don't really care. That's never the way this works. That's just surrender. And, and this isn't about just, eh, I don't really care. This is never about I don't care. And this is where I got to my definition of joy. And I think Paul has a unique perspective for this. But all of us have 10,000 voices in our head at all times. We have a lot of pressures. We have a lot of stuff to do. We have lists and lists and lists and, and things going on. And they all feel really important. They all, they all have to get done. They just do. They have to get done. 
like a million things that we have to do just to make it through life. And they're always bouncing around our school. But have you ever had one of those moments when you get that call and such and such has been in a wreck or such and such has had a heart attack or such and such is, is in the hospital? You ever notice how all of that stuff freezes? It just goes away. Like it's just, and, and, for, and the weird thing about those moments, the beauty in those moments is that for a second you can see through the garbage. For a second you can see through all the junk. And, and, and if, you're, if you're sitting there going, well, I've got, what am I, if, if somebody's like, hey, you're going to lay down all the, the frivolous stuff, you're like, so what, am I just supposed to not pick my kids up from the gym? Am I just supposed to not do my job and, and get fired? Like, well, what am I supposed to lay down? You tell me what I'm supposed to lay down. There's nothing I can lay down. And then you get a call, your spouse had a heart attack. And you're just like, Phew, just gone for that. In, in that moment, you're like, none of that garbage even matters. This is everything. In those moments, you get to see through the garbage. What's amazing is when everything turns out okay in those moments, when everything, like, when, when you hear such and such is in the hospital, such and such, you know, blah, 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 and you, and you rush in and everything turns out okay, it does, joy in that moment doesn't even feel like happiness. It's too deep and it's too, like, relieved and it's too, like, reflective to even feel like happiness. You're happy. Of course, you're thrilled that they didn't die, that everything turned out okay. But that's a feeling that's too deep to call happiness. You almost don't even know, because there's nothing like winning a, a lottery or something where you're like, yeah, like nobody cheers when you go in the hospital and says they're going to be okay. You ever notice you don't cheer? You go, oh, God. Whew. That's what joy feels like. Joy feels like, oh, thank God. Ah, happiness makes you cheer. Joy makes you cry, like, out of happiness or whatever that is. Joy, joy is deep. Joy is that moment when, when it's not just pie-in-the-sky optimism. It's, uh, and, and Paul, I think, is writing from prison. And, and at this point, he has an ability to go, who cares about circumcision? Who cares about church attendance? Who cares about, like, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm standing here, could die any day, and I refuse to get in these theological arguments right now. Like, and this is a guy who engaged him all the time, loved theological arguments. He, he lived on them. And now he's writing from prison. None of that matters but Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's where our joy comes from. So how do we respond to this? This is Joy Week. And in my opinion, we do a terrible job in America in the Christmas season of, of spreading joy. I think we spread busyness. I think we spread chaos. I think we, we spread, you know, intensity or any Pick your word. But I don't think we spread much joy. We fill this month with so much stuff. And the truth is joy, I think, comes from less I think it comes from that moment when you're so focused in and you see through all the garbage to what really matters. And when that, when that thing that really matters is okay, then you, then you experience joy. When we can see through all of the junk to Jesus, that is when the gospel, the angel said, I come with good news. I come with a gospel that's going to bring joy to people. 
when, when you can see through to the gospel and you're like, really, it's just about Jesus. Really, it's just about what he did. Like, and that's it. Then we can have real joy. That it's not about all the busyness. Obviously, we can't live 24-7 in this Zen place of seeing through all the garbage, of seeing through all the busyness in our life. Because 90% of it's meaningless, really. Like 90% of it, if it went away, you know, you'd go on just fine. Like it's, but we, you know, that stuff has to get done and we do it and we know we have to do it. And none of us can live constantly, you know, zoomed in only on what's eternal and, and meaningful. But during the Advent season, I do think it's a good time to zoom in and go, you know what, the whole world is going crazy. The whole world is losing their minds right now. The whole world is overspending and the whole world is over partying and the whole world is running and over shopping. And uh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to try to see through. So my challenge tonight as we sing this last song and go to the table together would be to maybe... Um, maybe do a little mental exercise and just for the next few minutes make your list of what you have to do this week think through the stuff that's ahead of you in the next seven days what do you have to do and then try to see through that list to what's important imagine how many of those things you would drop in a second if you got that big call And obviously, I'm not saying drop your whole list for the week. It has to be done. But what if for Advent we could do our list while seeing through it? Like, What if we could see through it and be like, I understand that there's more than this. I understand there's something bigger than this. I understand that this is all just busyness. It feels important. I know it's pushing on me. I know that it's, that it's, I know it's deadlines. I know it's all this stuff. But I can, I can quiet my heart. Because I know the things that are important are fine. The gospel. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that Jesus came and died for me. I can, I can see through the busyness and quiet my heart this Advent season and calm things down. And, and day crescendo. We've been talking about slowing down throughout Advent. And I think sometimes to do that we have to see through all the junk to what's important on the other side.